0: how's it going champagne sharks hope everyone's doing well just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning let people know go to champagne sharks.com and you get access to all the links related to champagne sharks so instead of asking us where the youtube is located where the patreon is located where the merchandise is located you can go there and find it all and you can find where we are on social media our products all that stuff Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club, Clubhouse so right now it's closed off it's in beta testing you have to be an iphone member but if you join patreon and through patreon join the discord you will be able to get uh, clubhouse invites and the reason why we want people to get those clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans and you need to get invited to take part of that including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks without further ado here is the episode take care hey how's it going we have um two guests with us today with talking about a uh, recent lawsuit that they're doing as well as um just stuff in the news in general but uh we're going to start you know by request with um Ken, who I think is, I think is your third time. I think you might be, uh, with this, you might be our most frequent guest uh, with this appearance. So uh, make of that what you will. We we could send you a plaque, but by all means. um, How about a challenge,
1: a challenge token?
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's do that. So if you don't mind telling the people uh, who you are and what you do and where to find you, even though I think uh, people know by now.
1: Okay. um, I'm Ken Klippenstein. I'm an investigative reporter now with The Intercept. Um, I am probably most known for my prolific uh, use of the Freedom of Information Act, a big long word for a pretty simple law, which just means that you can um, request records from government agencies and um, with the exception of certain uh, exemptions. Uh, they basically have to give them to you. It's a pretty cool law. In principle, it's a lot harder <laughs> in execution. But um, you know, if you do it right, you can get a lot of insight on a primary source basis into what the government's up to behind closed doors, and not have to rely on the sorts of access journalism and and you know reliance on um, political appointees and things like that to to give you things that I think uh, can can have a can have a negative effect on the way that coverage is coverage coverage is carried
0: out. And we also have with us. Uh... I hope I don't mess up your name, but Beth, Beth Bourdain.
2: That's the proper French way to pronounce it. Um, hi, I'm Beth Borden. I don't speak French, even though that's what we are. Um, I am a public defender by day. And in my off time, I help Ken pro bono with all the FOIA stuff. I file his lawsuits and I like to claim that I'm Ken's muscle.
1: She's my legal it- muscle. Yeah. As a, as a public defender, um, you know she goes toe to toe with police a lot. That's kind of her adversary in defending her clients, and it gave her a really interesting um, kind of perspective on FOIA that I didn't have. Because I'm often trying to FOIA law enforcement intelligence agencies, but I haven't, you know, fought them in a court setting in the way that he, she has. So that's been a very—I've um, learned a lot about how how to approach these types of agencies um, from
0: her. Yeah. Would you mind expanding on that, Beth? I'm curious to hear myself.
2: Well, um I get a lot of documents in discovery in my cases. We we have pretty good discovery for criminal cases here in Florida. We're allowed to do depositions and things like that. So, what I don't get in discovery, I might learn about asking questions of law enforcement in depositions, and then that led me to know what kind of documents cops produce, when they're partnering with federal agencies, and what you might expect a federal agency to provide to local law enforcement. And I suggested to Ken one day on a on some tweet of his that I think maybe he was trying to get something from the FBI and the FBI wasn't turning the documents over. And I had suggested, you know, you might be able to get at some of this through local law enforcement and doing records requests to, uh, to the state versus the feds. And, um, that's how we started talking and that's where the overlap came in.
0: Oh, wait. So you guys weren't like, uh, even particularly online friends for a long time before this, this kind of, uh, is it germination of it all?
2: Uh, I I didn't know who Ken was until um, I came across something like he and Jordan Yule. I found Jordan Yule first on Twitter, and he and Jordan Yule would have a lot of conversations. And I thought that they were both extremely hilarious. And um, so then I started following Ken after that, and that's how we started talking. Was off of Twitter. I didn't otherwise know either of them.
0: Now. This lawsuit, if you don't mind explaining um, how it came to be and what it's what it's about and, you know, some background on uh, FOIA in general, because even myself, I have to do a lot of uh, FOIAs with the uh, USCIS. And even myself, I didn't have much curiosity outside of who do I write to get what I want and, you know, so-and-so. So it wasn't until I was preparing for this episode that I realized I actually don't really understand even the structure of FOIA outside of just when I have to get it. And I need it done. And I realized that was kind of a failing on my part. I should actually be curious about this stuff.
1: Well, it's a sort of technical tool that um, there is a bit of a learning curve to know how to use. If you start out without someone who's able to kind of like walk you through and explain how to do it, these agencies are not great at doing that themselves. And, you know, it seems like by design that causes people to get sort of frustrated and give up on it. I don't really blame them. So, um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily something that everyone has to be doing. Um, People can work together with folks that are familiar with it. But to give you a sense of the history, the FOIA or Freedom of Information Act is the culmination of the, uh, it came out of the free speech movement in the 60s, you know, began in Berkeley and kind of swept across the country. And so um, when, when this was codified in law, the idea was, well, you know, the government is doing all these things that we don't like. And, you know, this is a period in which people are becoming a little more cognizant of, uh, you know, bad foreign policy, that kind of thing. And so the, the thought was, well, if they're doing all these things, you know, with our tax dollars in our name, um, you know, government depends on the consent of the governed in theory anyways, we should know what it is that they're doing. So why can't we know? So um, they codified that in law. And so um, this this law makes it so you can just go up to whatever it is, the FBI, Defense Department, CIA, and at least in theory, ask for what the records are. But the problem is um, not the sort of general idea, but how how it's been implemented. So I always say we don't really have a freedom of information. We have a freedom of records. You have to know what those records are called in order to get them. So um, if you want to have, you know, I think that in a sort of good faith, better system, you could have someone who doesn't have expertise in this kind of thing just go up to and be like, I'd like to learn about, you know, our foreign policy in Honduras. And then they'd have a librarian or something of the sort that you see in any university that can go and research things for you and bring you back um, some, you know, documents showing you this, but that's not what we have. Uh, In fact, under the law and relevant case law, they're not required to do any research or produce any new documents. So what you have to do is say um, not just what the documents are, but, you know, try to describe what their titles are and things like that. And so at that point, how do you know what these documents are? You haven't worked there. You know, you don't, you're maybe not friends with someone who works there. And and therein is the difficulty uh, with the way that this, you know, law has been implemented. Um, they don't have that sort of good faith approach, uh, generally speaking. Um, and so you have to have Knowledge of, of what these things are called, and, and that re- depend, that requires sources and, and familiarity with the agency that you know makes things pretty hard and, and one more thing I want to add is that there's this impression that Freedom of Information Act is mostly journalists or activists and things, but that's kind of misleading. The vast majority of requesters are commercial in nature, so big corporations trying to uh, gin up business intelligence on different things and these guys have fancy lawyers that know these laws backwards and forwards they have lobbyists that know how to write these requests and tell them how to use the how to, you know, what the documents are called and where to find them. Um, unfortunately, you know, activists and, and, and the media, they don't have anything approaching those kind of resources. So, um, you know, mine and Beth's working together. It's been a sort of attempt to really do what they're already doing, big business, you know, uh, uh, private interests, um, but, but trying to do this from the perspective of informing the public.
0: For some reason, I have to imagine that they're probably just more cooperative with big business anyway, to a degree, I imagine, because with all the cronyism and the, and the, people that move in and out from like you know government to to white shoe law firms and, and back and forth and everything but um what has been the biggest uh thing that you've learned from this side of the process from doing doing the lawsuit that you know you thought you understood but didn't actually understand until working with beth on this
1: um, I think as a reporter, you, you you pick up pretty quickly. I mean if you're not a complete moron which I guess isn't <laughs> is a descriptive of all media, but um, it, I think that most people would pick up pretty quickly how power sort of works and how um, you know people that have a lot of capital, a lot of um, you know, whether that's social or, or monetary or whatever, um, you know they they are pretty good at navigating these complex institutions and getting them to, Um, work for them. So um, in the context of the lawsuit, and Beth can speak to this more because she's had not just, this is why it's been so cool to work with her. A lot of lawyers have this kind of West Wing mindset and they have a lot of kind of adulation for these uh, like hallowed institutions. And, you know, they they really believe that things work and that uh, we're trying to find out the truth here and these kind of things. I I mean, you know, Beth defends essentially a lot of poor people that can't can't afford an attorney. She gets a much different picture of the world from that. I think a more accurate one. Um, And, you know, I, I had wanted to litigate FOIA requests for a long time but couldn't really find anyone that I just saw eye to eye with on these sorts of things. And her perspective on you know, how police really operate and, and how the justice system actually works, and how courts actually work, um, made it so much easier to be able to approach these things. So I'd say the big thing I learned, I mean, I was always skeptical of the courts, but seeing the way in which they... That kind of centrist, like I called it um, uh, the West Wing ideology before, that a, a judges really seem to have that a disposition of one of our cases, which uh, I think any sensible outside of observer would have said, oh, wow, the police were totally in the wrong here, law enforcement were totally in the wrong here. Um, the judge essentially decided a sort of both sides thing where he, I, I think, saw that they were in the wrong and thought, well, but you know, it's the state versus some media people. Maybe I'll just give it half and half. Maybe I'll give them half of what they want and not the other half. And so just how naked this kind of like um, deference to to the state um, was sort of worse than I thought it would be even. And I didn't have very high expectations.
0: So um, Beth, as far as your um, side of this, like what has it been like uh, doing this lawsuit and what has been basically, you know, the aim and what you're hoping to accomplish uh, with it?
2: I guess what I'm hoping for is I just want the agencies to do their job. I I don't think that that's unreasonable. And I don't think that people should have to sue. To get the things that they're asking for, they're very reasonable records, reasonable documents. You shouldn't have to know exactly what a document is called in order to be able to get it. There's no requirement within FOIA for you to provide some magic words to these agencies. So, you know, what we're looking for, what I'm looking for, is to just make them start being compliant because. The average activist isn't going to have $400 to file a lawsuit to force compliance on these agencies. And the agencies know that. I think Ken will tell you this as well. Once we started suing them, all of a sudden they started responding to requests. As soon as we would enter them, they would acknowledge receipt and provide us with tracking numbers. And then um, our first lawsuit was in 2019 we filed it in october of 2019 we got great compliance with them for a while and then you know three months goes by and the compliance starts to slip again so it's like you just have to be in this constant cycle of suing them to maintain any sort of compliance and communication with these places
0: i didn't realize you guys have been doing it this long for some reason i thought you started in
2: 2020 our very first lawsuit include Talia included Talia Lavin. She had um, had a tweet that she took down within 15 minutes and then ICE ended up putting out an official statement about her. It really upended her life. So Ken and Talia filed a FOIA request to ICE about those events and ICE never responded. In fact, ICE read the request as being a request for talia's alien file and sent the request to the uscis and uscis of course didn't respond because we weren't asking for that and and we tried to correct them and say this isn't an alien file we're requesting and so when they didn't respond we filed a lawsuit in october of 2019 and that was our very first one.
0: Oh, interesting! I didn't know. I didn't know that this wasn't the first. The first one. That's that's crazy. I had no idea that it happened with um, Talia. I know that uh, Jake Flores had his own dealing with ICE that everybody knows about, but I didn't uh, realize that thing with Talia. Is that like an ongoing thing, or have they reached some type of resolution with that? Because that sounds like it's a real mess.
2: We resolved that one um, in our favor in 2020. <laughs> And that one closed somewhere around like November. So it it took a full year to get all of the records. And then when they sent us the records, they over-redacted and and took redactions that they weren't entitled to. So we would have to say, you know, you need to reproduce this first set of documents, which then slows the production of the second set of documents. And then the second set of documents, they over-redacted yet again. So it was an ongoing process with trying to get them to remove redactions that they weren't entitled to take. But that one did resolve. And then in December is when we filed two new lawsuits.
0: A lot of people uh, don't know this, including myself. I didn't have a good understanding about this, but... uh I think a lot of people think that FOIA is some kind of central uh, department that is handling all these requests, but it is not it is not that. It's something that is under each individual. It's something that's across. actually, I'll let you guys uh, describe it because you described it to me uh, before you got on air. So,
1: yeah, you just each each um agency has its own records unit that handles these things. And so um the lack of federation presents some problems because then, there's not a whole lot of oversight. So the oversight that exists at the federal level is maybe they'll have some ombudsman or, um, you know, they'll have someone you can issue an appeal to, but the person you're appealing it to is also part of the same agency. So it's like the the fox is watching the hen house. And so <laughs> I'm not saying that, you know, appealing things uh, can't, you know, be useful, um, but it's it's very often pretty weak. And that's how the law is in general. It's not like the idea behind it wasn't good. It's that the execution created a sort of toothless law and the people that worked on it. I think Ralph Nader actually had a significant role in the law's creation. He himself has criticized the law in retrospect. I think he's called it a um, uh, toothless as well. And so it's interesting to see. I mean, none of this is to say that it's not worth doing because getting these primary source documents, boy, that changes the entire game. Because then a lot of the points that activists are making and that people are making who are who are sort of disregarded as uh, maybe they're, you know, they're politically interested or they're fringe or where's your evidence, suddenly you have the receipts. And it's very hard to argue with that. I mean, I can get, you know, four anonymous sources to tell me something, but I can't publish their names because they'll be fired. Um, so that doesn't leave you with a whole lot else other than uh, the fact that you can uh, request these things that are being generated. Um, I always joke that it's like the it's like the exhaust port of the Death Star that is the national security state, which is that they love to collect information on everything and everyone that they possibly can, Hoover everything up. Well, the downside to that, uh, from their point of view, is that that leaves a lot of records because they love to uh, notarize everything and memorialize everything. And you can get those in principle. And, um, you know, I found... I've found a number of tricks that you can use to kind of uh, leverage this imperfect law, um, either outside of the court or inside of it to, to to maximize that. And it does work if you know, if you've got some practice at it. So I don't want to be, I don't want to be too cynical about it. But yeah, there's no, you know, there's no unified federated thing. It's just each agency handles its own things, which is ridiculous because it's like, shouldn't there be some external authority deciding if if this agency is complying? I mean, why would you ask the guy? It's like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's like you're asking the cop to police himself. Like, it's not going to work.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've done it uh, a lot with USCIS, and I had the problems with a really recent one that was just um, how much to get, how to get done, and they kept nitpicking all these different things, and then they would close it down, and then when I would send a new one, uh, they would playing these games where they would reopen the old one and, and reject the new one or so I had like these different control numbers for it and it was driving me nuts because they um, would keep reopening and closing and when I would send a new one they would switch it around and after a while I didn't know which control number was um, the right the right one. I would try to ask people I knew from Twitter or who were fans of the podcast who were like uh, FOIA experts about what do I do about this and they would be like oh, we've never done a USCIS FOIA so the advice they were giving me wasn't really uh, working. And that was my first clue that, um, okay, there's not a real, very standardized way. I mean, there is kind of a standard commonalities to it, but it's also very different from agency to agency. And I have to imagine, that must be really horrible for people who have to deal with multiple agencies in the course of the work. All the time, and I imagine that probably is something that happens with you, Ken, as an investigative reporter. Your oh, are yeah. different, yeah, yeah. What
1: so like with CIS? They've got different agencies have different um, uh, what's called um, uh, backlogs. So you know, one agency might have a backlog of tens of thousands of requests they have yet to respond to. In fact, many do. Other, uh, some others aren't as bad, and so it, it's complicated. Um, but you know, um, in the case of CIS. Um, under the Trump administration, one of their methods for you know shutting down immigration since CIS handles um, immigration stuff uh, was not to explicitly pass any laws changing it, but just to sort of defund the agencies or move or shuffle personnel around such that they didn't have the resources to process uh, people's legitimate um, immigration filings. And so that's one way to sort of, um, in a very quiet way, uh, effectuate what you might not be able to pass in Congress. And so that contributed enormously to a massive backlog there. Um, and they're one of the most infamous agencies over the last several years in terms of um, being n- non-responsive or slow. And so the process you're describing, this kind of kafka gask thing where it's really hard to differentiate, in my experience, between incompetence and malice, um, maybe the distinction doesn't matter, but... Um, uh, th- this process you're describing, where they're opening new things and closing new things, before I started working with Beth, that stuff was really hard for me because my brain just doesn't work that way. I'm not really organized myself. I tend to have a more intuitive approach to things. And so, um, you know, something I'd observe is that um, that th- those types of headaches lend themselves to, um, uh, you know, people who have the resources of a corporation and um, you know, legal help, secretarial help, those kind of things. Those are the folks that know how to that, that will have the time and patience to navigate these sorts of things. And just de facto, that locks out any sensible person. Who's not? Who's not the type of person that's excited to go on the ACA website and look at all of the different deals you can get? <laughs> you know what I mean.
0: Do you guys um, have like a hierarchy of what you think is the worst agency in your in your experience, or the best ones for um, for your requests? Or are they just been kind of universally bad in a way that it's a distinction without much of a difference?
1: Well, I'm curious to hear Beth's thoughts as well, but I think that in general, anything. Uh, national security, they abuse the types of um, exemptions that they have like crazy. So they have all these exemptions that they can say, oh, we can't give you this because it might hurt the national security of the U.S., which obviously is very Broad and broadly construed um, exemption. Another one is law enforcement. Um, They're they're really bad because then they can just say, "Oh, this is going to harm an ongoing investigation." This is going, and you'll frequently get them claiming that for an investigation that's been uh, that was commenced like five years ago. So it's very likely not uh, in effect anymore. But how do I prove that? I'm not able to prove that. They're not going to volunteer that the investigation was closed. So I'd say anything law enforcement or national security or just you know. State security in general is, is is going to be the worst of anything.
2: I get driven insane in a completely different way right now because my, my brain works so different from most people's. Like, Treasury drives me crazy. Anytime we submit something to Treasury, Treasury wants to know, well, what office do you think we should search? Well, I want you to search all of them. You know, I don't understand Treasury's little hierarchy for most things. And Treasury always wants to know, well, what office or bureau or department are you looking for? And they don't like it when you answer back, I'm looking for all of them. Or we do a request and we're looking for um, emails from a particular person for a time frame. They're like, well, we want to search it by keyword. Well, I, I'm i not giving you a keyword because that's how you're going to exclude items from me because I failed to come up with some random word that would have applied. I want all of them from the time frame. And so this is where where I get angry with the agencies is is arguing with them over these little things like where to search. Search everywhere for everything that I asked for. That's where to search. And some of them, I don't even think that they're doing their own searches. Some of them have contractors that they use to search for items And they'll send something back saying there's no records found when you know full well that they have the records. Like we did a request to the State Department for some diplomatic cables. Everybody knows what a diplomatic cable is. And, you know, a lot of people learned when there was a WikiLeaks um, cable gate is when they learned about diplomatic cables. And, you know, the State Department responds that they don't know what we're asking for. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you absolutely do know what I'm asking for. You just don't want to give it to me. So I, I them wanting keyword searches and specific office searches is, is where I just go crazy.
0: Do you think also, I have to imagine that they recognize um, your names. I mean, people get to know people and I have to imagine that must play a role too because um, people think of, oh, this person um Leans left or leans radical or um, has these um, probably anti-government attitudes and we're going to to mess with them. Like I imagine at some points your names must um, hurt you, but at some points as well, especially when you have like active lawsuits going, uh, your names probably uh, help you as well during certain periods.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I think once I see that you have a little bit of capital behind you, and we've been very fortunate in the generosity of just random people on Twitter who have thrown in. I mean, I don't know what we're at—almost like three thousand a month now. Um, which, like, the amount of money you need to do this stuff is not nothing, but it's also not like a huge amount of money. To to me, it seems like just uh, just enough to sort of lock out any sort of ordinary person and, and ensure that only corporations are going to be doing these things. But somehow we. We crested that um, you know that that hill, and now we have enough resources to do it regularly. And as best said, since then, um, it's <laughs> the compliance has been a lot less bad. And and um, you know, it's it's it can still be a headache, but suddenly it's like, oh, here's your number. Here's oh, do you want to do you want? I uh, asked for an estimated release date. Here's an estimated release date. Oh, let's talk this over. Let's let's work this through. And it just seems very clear, as is so much of else, uh, so much else in the society. You know, this this law um, is 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 uh, is. The, the, compliance with it is a, is a sort of uh, privilege and, and, and uh, a commodity in a way. Um, it, you know, if you've, if you've got the capital to, to force them to, to sort of warn them that there might be some consequences and suddenly the, the, the law um, comes into effect. Otherwise they just ignore it.
0: What has been, what has it been like, um, uh, following these cases as far as impact on your, uh, real life? Has it been, uh, causing any problems or, or not?
1: Not at all. Um, Beth had some funny stories about how unprepared they were for some of these lawsuits, not just at the state level, because there's, you know, state versions of FOIA, but also at the federal where they're kind of like, FOIA, I've never had a case like that. What do I do with that? So I, I, I mean, one of the big things I've seen is that, um, you know, certainly the state has this sledgehammer in terms of its power and authority and ability to influence courts. Uh, but it's also so incompetent that it's kind of like they, they dropped the ball so much that, um, that, it, it almost it almost seems like they're especially in the context of covid that they're just kind of racing around trying to put out fires at this point um so so i don't i don't know that i've i've had people in the agencies that were sympathetic reach out before that are either RFOI people or uh, maybe sort of dissident people in these agencies that feel bad about things that'll give me tips but that's really been the the extent of it um, i'll give you an example um, there are these things called fusion centers that after 9/11 they establish a network of them that are basically supposed to share intelligence they kind of mediate between local law enforcement and federal um, law enforcement intelligence. Uh, it's sort of like the Defense Department program where they give these huge tanks, these MRAPs to local cops. Another part of that is that they don't just give equipment, they also give intelligence. And the federal intelligence agencies have way more sophisticated um, tools and resources to be able to collect those things. So it's sort of scary in its own right that they're giving local cops this kind of stuff. But so um, I was curious about these fusion centers. So they started sending out requests to a lot of them and then at one point i started getting people in the fusion centers reaching out being like please help these places are horrible we're violating people's rights like i saw your request the other day and they're they're completely trying to you know bypass it so that it won't give you anything so the extent of the response has sort of been horrified people in a lot of the agencies kind of reaching out more than anything although i think beth would be able to speak more to that since uh as a public defender you're more uh uh you interact with the government more in other, in other respects.
2: I haven't suffered any sort of negative consequences or, you know, I, I don't think that I'm known in the way that Ken is known. Um, but certainly the local assistant United States attorneys are getting to know me here in federal <laughs> court because we're filing here in the middle district of Florida, which most, I would say, maybe 95% percent of all FOIA lawsuits get filed in DC. And so it's extremely rare, I guess, that they get filed here in the middle district of Florida in Orlando. So the very first lawsuit we had, the the federal prosecutor said that he hadn't had one for 14 years. And um, they have these weird things called tracks here for their lawsuits that don't really, FOIA lawsuits don't really fit very well into any of the tracks so they kind of get jammed into one track and you have to make a square peg fit into a round hole on this track but it, it's different dealing with them here because they're in one sense they're more laid back about it um but in another you know, they start getting concerned over when you use the words terror, especially at a state level. Ken was talking about the fusion centers and, you know, local state judges, they don't ever deal with something that's related to terrorism. That's always federal. So when you have a fusion center that's operated by the state and you're using the state records law to try to get at these records, the state just throws the word terror in there, and the judges are they get so concerned, like, oh, you know, what this touches on national security. I we need to protect our national security, and it's frustrating at a state level here for sure. And, um, like Ken said, our federal or our state lawsuit here against the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, I think the judge just Recognized that they need to give us some records, but also wanted to, to allow for a concession since there was a purported terror angle to it and allowed them to redact a little bit more than I think that they should have been able to redact. But, um, you know, we could have taken on an appeal and, and wasted more time on that or just accept what they give us and, and go from there. So
0: do you feel like the changing of the guards from um, Trump to Biden, so to speak, makes a difference in in any of this. And when I say a difference, I'm not even just talking about a tangible difference as far as the um, foyer goes, but as far as the public reception to these things, as far as people caring about this lawsuit. Because I have to imagine to some degree, there are probably some people that like anything that can be viewed on as a judgment on the... Trump administration who suddenly, you know, stop caring or even view it as problematic when you bring up the same thing under a Biden administration?
1: Oh, yeah, I ceased to exist on January twentieth. But uh, I'm, I've been reporting since the Obama administration. So I'm used to that um, tendency. And um, I guess with the, with Biden, um, one of the things that made me a little more optimistic about it was that he's just less, uh, he's, he's less smooth than Obama was. Obama was like, pretty pretty charismatic, you know, where I, I think that Biden lacks that. So hopefully that's going to give me more space. Um, I'll keep doing a lot of the same stuff I have been doing. I mean, that has, hasn't really changed. My hope also is that people will understand, um, how independent a lot of these agencies are becoming. So when you look at the way that Trump used Department of Homeland Security, they basically became a sort of political police, uh, where he was, uh, for example, sending into Portland, Oregon to, you know, put down the protests there, uh, these, these, uh, these these border patrol agents that are supposed to you know fight cartels it's called BORTAC border patrol tactical units they were using those to uh, respond to protesters you know unrest broken windows at the worst that kind of thing um, in in Portland and um, what's interesting about that is that the um, officials there didn't want it so the Senate didn't want it the mayor of uh, Portland didn't want it the state reps didn't want it and so this was just you know, just flagrant contravention of like any purported concerns about states' rights and all the stuff that Republicans have been doing for years and years. Um, So in that way, it became a sort of, you know, I talked to guys at Homeland Security who described this as elections optics for President Trump. So my hope is that Democrats will realize, um, or at least be open to the idea that these agencies, it's not like, oh, Biden's in, so they're they're blue now and they're, they're going to, you know, do everything differently. I mean, it's, it's a lot of the same career people. I mean, you change the political pointies and things, but, um, the structure of the agency is essentially the same and it could uh, easily be turned against the Democrats later, or, you know, uh, Biden can use them to do various sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not thrilled at the way that, uh, it, people's perception of these things changes, but, um, it's just been so acute. How, how badly they can be abused over the last several months, and I'm hoping that that, that will make some kind of a difference. And, and I haven't, I, you know, I'm sort of heartened by the fact that at least the people that support the Patriot, we haven't gotten any sort of negative response to them um, from, from, you know, are continuing to do essentially the same stuff under this administration. But again, that's a different group of people than the New York Times editorial board or, or whoever you might be thinking of. Um, so, so I'm not sure what people generally would think.
2: My hope is that now that there's a different administration, that some of these FOIA officers that perhaps thought that there were nefarious things happening that shouldn't happen and and really wanted these records to get out, but the prior administration didn't want these records out there, now have the room to be able to say, okay, this is about compliance and these records comply with this request and and we will actually start seeing movement on some of them and getting some of the records that we had requested because this administration isn't invested in keeping secret some of the bad things that the prior administration may have approved.
0: I mean, I feel like this is kind of an interesting time that we're in because I feel like people are just falling asleep unmasked uh, right now. And it's just a very bizarre uh it's kind, of, it's kind of bizarre, this idea of the return to normalcy thing. So I'm really kind of wondering how these things are going to be covered in the future, how people, because I'll say even during Trump, I feel like even with the hysteria, people even then weren't really focused on the right thing. They were m- more focused on this kind of sexy Russiagate thing scandal. So I think even even then the type of thing that you guys are doing was probably even though it was more well received than now still wasn't the bread and butter of what a MSNBC or cable news would want to talk about uh you know
1: yeah, you're exactly right. So, I mean, that's why we got into this stuff is because the the reportage is very White House centric, and uh, the fact is that most of the White House is actually exempt from FOIA. You can't actually, you can't even do that with them. So, you know, by by necessity, a lot of our work is gonna, you know, not be that. And I think that's good because there's way too much of this palace intrigue junk. Like, you know, what did Kellyanne Conway say to, um, you know, Trump? What did what did Trump? What did Trump say to uh, Hope Hicks or whatever? But, I mean, a lot of this stuff, I'm not saying they don't have power and that this stuff isn't, you know, doesn't have some importance. But the stuff that's happening in the Homeland Security Department and ICE and Customs and Border Protection, a lot of that stuff happens remote from the White House. And a lot of it Trump might not even be aware of. And uh, particularly somebody like Trump, who's 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 uniquely uh, checked out of, of policy at the sort of um, – uh, Uh, practical ground level. So I've always tried to focus on the agencies that are actually carrying out the policies instead of like, what is the guy at the top saying? It's like, I liken it to, um, it's, it's like if you want to find out about a corporation, are you going to look at what the CEO says or, or are you going to look at what the rank and file people that are building the cars or, or you know whatever it is the corporation does? Or do you want to look at what they have to say? I tend to want to look. I mean, it doesn't have to be people at the very bottom, but it's like, you know, people that are doing the thing. And so FOIA is a great tool for that because um, the agencies that that, the, that it does apply to are the ones that are, that are you know, it's called the executive branch because they're executing um, the sort of uh, uh, political vision sketched out by the White House. And I think that gives you a much more realistic picture of what they're up to. Because as you point out, if you look at the MSNBC stuff, you know, you'll hear about certain things. But for, for example, you're not going to hear about... Um, just a, a lot of pro corporate policy. Um, you're not going to hear about you're not going to you're not going to hear about the sort of subtle changes to these agencies that affect people's civil liberties. You know, in a very dramatic way, uh, because that doesn't fit this sort of you know uh, uh, very character driven drama. It almost feels like that you get from this sort of uh, White House reporting. So in a lot of ways, yeah, the four has been our, it, for me an antidote. Uh, to that type of coverage. And I think that's why people are, are receptive to it because it is sort of remote from the I mean I, we do have liberals that support us and it's just like it feels separate. I think it's it's so separate from that from that um, kind of uh, how would you call it that kind of soap opera that you see uh, g- going on in the White House that, they, that it doesn't it doesn't trigger some of their sensibilities in the way that that, that other approaches might.
0: Something when I was doing research for this episode uh, that came up was, uh, uh, Beth, for some reason, when I um, search your name, you know, because I wanted to find out more about the lawsuit, like the, the first autocomplete that comes up is Parlor. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so for some reason a lot of people are searching your name and uh parlor and then i read i read why but i thought it was pretty funny so i um i feel like that's something that's in the news now with privacy as well i would you to talk about that
2: um i had even forgotten about that for a while um yeah it's so- a top
0: search at least in my search bar
2: <laughs> yeah so Um, uh, When Parler came about, you know, uh, uh, there was a group of us that were like, well, let's just go and and test their free speech. Why not see how free it really is over there? And they're actually uh, their terms of service are far more restrictive than Twitter. I'll tell you that. And I out of the group of us that did it, I lasted the longest at three full days before they permanently banned me. And um, I didn't try to get back on after that. Um,
0: What were you doing on there?
2: Pretty much just harassing all of the people that had already been banned from Twitter. And um, the one that I was really like uh, targeted isn't the best word for it. But the one that I was like replying to a lot was um, Katie Hopkins and... um, I happened to like they call it a a parlay so it's it's not like a tweet it's a parlay so I had parlayed <laughs> so at Hitchens. her <laughs> I had parlayed at her a photo that would be fine on twitter that I got from twitter which was a picture of her like in a field with a guy who is now her husband but at the time was married to someone else and they were like having sex in a field you can't see actual like genitalia or anything like that but you know full well what they're doing and they're nude and someone got a picture of them and so i parlayed that at her and and that's what resulted in my permanent ban
0: that is such an image i don't want to uh, <laughs> imagine <laughs> is
1: she the Brit? she's the british like far right lady
0: yes yeah and i usually don't like to go after uh people's looks but in her case because she's um you know, done it herself with other people. Like I remember, she was talking about. Um, I think Meghan Markle and her looks. She was talking about. Or she was she talking about somebody? And it turned out they were both the same age. And it was like <laughs> shocking when you found out. Like she ages like horribly, like Dorian Gray. Like I don't know if all the evil in her is like making her age at like an exponential rate. But yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's really shocking. She's a really nasty uh, piece of work for sure. But uh, it's kind of funny because I mean these are people who talk about free speech a lot and they get upset when anyone gets banned from Twitter. But they're like the most notoriously thin-skinned um, people on their own turf, which I find hilarious. Yeah. With Parler, speaking of privacy, they had some kind of weird thing lately. Like they had something where it turned out somebody was able to hack all their information because they were. Um, do you know anything about this? Something with.
1: Yeah, it was was like someone got multiple terabytes of information. And apparently Parler would collect so much personal information about you that you could somehow correlate this with the anonymous accounts and find out who the users are.
0: Yeah, 50 terabytes of data was leaked. Somebody put it all online. And as someone who used to have a blog, Parler was run on WordPress. WordPress is just freeware. I mean, it's it's just insane that somebody would do something this privacy um, sensitive and all about anonymity and put it on something as hackable as WordPress or something that's basically almost open source.
2: Yeah, I think well they were a- collecting people's identification yes, you like need they- a driver's
0: license just to have an account right yeah something like
2: well, that. well if you wanted to be like it, it appealed to their vanity it was sort of like a twitter verification so if you wanted to be sort of like a registered user and get this fancy little badge to you you had to provide your driver's license and and then um they would use that to verify that you are indeed a real person. And then you get this level of verification to, to your parlor account. So like, and they stored it and, all of that was easily available when when they got it. Their information when
1: they banned Trump. My big concern was that he was going to establish a sort of shadow government in Mar-a-Lago and, and have his own TV show and and just yeah, it, I would I would think that he's going to over the next couple of years um, have a lot of fodder for for um, generating discontent and anger because I can't imagine the Democrats are going to be able to do enough to to you know um, keep just give people dignified lives over the next few years given the enormity of the. Of the situation, um, but I'm sort of heartened by looking at Parler, and it might be that they're just so corrupt, and uh, it, it, they won't be able to establish another uh, social media outlet without just immediately, you know, grabbing everyone's information and stealing everything that isn't nailed down. Uh- <laughs>
0: Uh, can you imagine what the Donald Trump presidential library is going to be like? That's going to be really interesting.
1: <laughs> it's just like printed out tweets and like pinned to the
0: wall. <laughs> oh, God. I would, visit, I would visit the hell out of that. I've never wanted to go to a presidential library before, but I would go like, on opening day if I could just to see like what on earth that thing is going to be like.
1: I'm thinking of that house in San Francisco. I don't know if you guys saw this on Twitter where you could get, in San Francisco, you can get your house, you can get like a verified badge for your
0: house. I can, like, saw pop- that. That's what I'm picturing the library being. (laughs) Didn't that turn out to be a joke or not? I mean, the fact that I have to ask, I think already says volume. (laughs) Like, like whether it ends up being a joke or not, the fact that you have to wonder. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I think I saw that the person said it was a joke, but probably thinks that it really, like, I think the person was saying it was a joke, but hoping somebody bites on it because they made a whole site.
1: I would guess it's like these, it's like, uh, you know, I know people in uh, Border Patrol show me they have these challenge coins where it's literally, the, uh, she showed me one of them was a picture of, an, of a family, like with little kids like running. And it was like, it was like epic that they were making these, this, this poor family like run from, from Border Patrol. And so uh, I asked him, I was like, whoa, the, this is like a Border Patrol thing. He's like, well, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a fundraiser thing we do on the side. So it's like, um, it's not government money, but it's under the auspices of a nonprofit that, that is part of, it was like this complicated, I wonder if it's something like that, where it's like some kind of scheme someone has running that's sort of, you know, uh, uh, has some relation to Twitter or something. I mean, that's how it seems like increasingly that's how everything is now.
0: Have you guys seen that? Um, I'm guessing this is what you're referring to, but, uh, the office of the former president that, uh, Trump created with the letterhead and everything.
1: Oh Yeah. <laughs> <I saw that. laughs>
0: That was, uh, yeah, I thought that was hilarious. And it makes me think about that shadow government thing. I wonder um, to what degree not being on Twitter is going to really hurt him. Because I I don't know. The whole thing is just kind of funny to me. It's just a toothless thing to do now. Like, what's the point of doing it now?
2: I want him back on Twitter. I want to see what he's up to and what he's doing and what his supporters are about to do. Like, put him back reinstate him yeah
0: i i agree i mean the point of where this would have been um a bold statement is long past so like why even bother just have him on it'll be fun like to me i think now is when he's um most harmless when I mean, he doesn't have an office of a president behind him like why are you signal boosting his every move when he's the when he's the president and then discarding him now it's just really weird i mean i mean if you claim that you're doing it for some so-called public good you know
1: yeah, it's like a mirror image of all the Trump officials that uh, resigned like literally five days before the end of the uh, presidency.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're kind of trying to save uh, a semblance of a of a career. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, uh, and this goes to both of you, but um, I guess we could start with Ken. I was wondering what other things you guys have been uh, working on or pieces of news that you've been um, following that you think are important that, uh, you know, besides what's going on with the FOIA cases.
1: Yeah, I've got a story coming out uh, probably this week. About the big debate about if we need a domestic terrorism law, there's a uh, there's a big push, and the language Biden's using, um, not just in in you know uh, whatever speech, but as his inauguration, he's specifically calling whatever the Capitol they're domestic terrorists. These kind of things, those are that's like legal terminology that suggests to me that there's a there's a. You know, uh, push within the uh, administration uh, to 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 try to to try to codify that in the law. So a lot of people don't know this, but you can't actually be charged for terrorism. Um, you know, in the U.S. if you're a U.S. citizen, they or in general they charge assistance for terrorism. So you know, providing material support, that kind of thing. And so um, the idea that that some people are making, um, and I think a lot of liberals are sympathetic to this, even though this is something President Bush would have loved to have, um, is that is that, you know, you make it easier for for them to label groups or individuals, terrorists here, charge them with that, then, then you know, this will be a useful tool in, in stopping the far right. So I actually decided to just talk to people in the FBI who do counterterrorism stuff, people in Homeland Security that do counterterrorism work. And, um, you know, these guys are mostly conservatives. Um, they all have very, you know, uh, Strong law and order type views, and even they were kind of taken aback. They're like, "Whoa, this is like going pretty far." And they were a lot more ambivalent than the picture that you're seeing painted on, um, you know, cable news. So I asked them why they're ambivalent, and they said, "Well, say you've got some crazy uncle who's a QAnon guy, and um, QAnon is is designated a terrorist group. Um, if you have him over for dinner, or if you buy him a gift for, on Christmas or whatever it is, that could be construed as material support for terrorism because you're giving money to somebody that's part of this group." So it opens up all sorts of doors that I don't think people have really considered um, that I think, and, and I hope in the story that I write is going to illustrate to them, here's what that actually means. And the people that wanted the law, they were kind of like um, salivating at the idea like, whoa, all the electronic surveillance we could conduct, we don't need a warrant. We could start doing subpoenas without a warrant. They're called administrative subpoenas. I was blown away by how much, I mean, because, you know, we just talk about this uh, vague idea, like we call, call them terrorists. You know, it's like this... It's a very tired way to go viral on liberal Twitter is, is, is point out that um, you know some, some far-right group wasn't called a terrorist, but some other group was. Um, and so that's the sort of depth of the discussion. But I don't think anybody's really considered what that would mean practically in terms of what, long, what tools law enforcement is going to get to um, bring to bear against people.
2: For me, what I've been looking at here in Florida, because it, it more directly impacts my day job, is um, one thing that grew out of the, the protests that went on last year is, you know, Ron DeSantis, our governor, who is very aligned with Trump, got really tired of seeing protesters, and so he's trying to pass really restrictive laws that are aimed directly at, at you know, people like BLM and and anyone who is out for George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. So. I just pulled it up to, to make sure that I didn't misquote something. Our felony system here a third degree felony is the lowest level felony, a first degree felony is the highest. So um, they want to make it a third-degree felony to obstruct traffic during an unpermitted protest. And then from there, if a driver strikes someone, they're not liable for for injury or death if they're trying to flee from the safety of this mob that's flowed onto the street. They want to make it a second-degree felony, which is punishable by up to 15 years in prison, to destroy public property during a violent or disorderly assembly and that's directed at monuments so uh, they also want to make a RICO liability to anybody who organizes or funds a violent or disorder disorderly assembly like it's it's just ridiculous what they're trying to do here to prevent future protests so that's that's my biggest one right now that I'm looking at because that's you know where the fallout's going to come to my day job is is all these people that are going to get arrested on on just ridiculous things
0: uh, here's the last question that i wanted to ask to both of you i wanted to know um these changes that are happening right now i mean i personally have no idea how anything's going to realign you know i think it's going to be pretty hard until the first hundred days of biden are done but i feel in general that there's been this kind of um people being in limbo, especially um, people in radical spaces and leftist spaces and um, uh, protesting spaces, et cetera, where they're not really sure exactly, okay, what's going to happen to um, this kind of new leftism? What's going to happen to this uh, Black Lives Matter movement? What's going to happen to any of this this stuff under Biden? Because I feel like a lot of what is happening now is a return, an attempted return to Obama days, you know, and um, there was a, a big kind of hope happening in electoral politics behind Bernie, where a lot of people were going full on or all in on the idea of um, electoral politics, particularly on the national level. And I was wondering if any of you guys were willing to make any predictions about how you think things are going to change in terms of a lot of the movement that we've been seeing, if everything's going to dissipate, if things are going to move toward local electoral politics more, if you think there's going to be a, a kind of resurgence in, in organizing or a kind of disillusionment? I would guess um, that
1: the uh, civil war within the democratic party is going to intensify um, rather than weaken because um, the democratic leadership, the establishment wing of the Democrats, they don't have the uh, emotional blackmail of saying, well, what do you want Trump to win that they had for the last four years? Uh, in many ways, it was sort of astonishing to me that, that, um, the progressive wing and leftists were able to, um, register demands within the democratic party as much as they were, because, you know, I grew up during the Bush administration. And I remember if you look at, um, the democratic party, then there was no, um, progressive caucus, uh, certainly, uh, there was no squad there. It was just Nancy Pelosi. And they mostly seemed to agree on everything. There's very little in the way of dissension, um, within the democratic party, because, um, they would just say, well, you know, where do you want Bush to win? Uh, and that's what they try to do with Trump. But, um, you know, we got a number of uh, progressives that were able to win at the congressional level. You're right to point out local levels always can be the most interesting because there are the fewest barriers to entry. There's the, I mean, you have to raise at the presidential level, you have to raise a billion dollars to, to run. And who's going to be able to do that? Well, probably someone who's Uh, on good terms with folks that have a billion dollars. So the farther down you go, the more interesting things are and the more amenable uh, these figures are, I think, to to the demands of the left. So I think, um, you know, going at the level of state legislature, that kind of thing, uh, there there are some positive developments. Um, At the congressional level, I think there will continue to be these sort of bitter primaries and um, uh, hopefully... uh, there will be this sense that, um, you know, well, we've got the, we control the Senate, we control the house. This is what you guys said to do. And, and, you know, that you're still not passing enough. You're still not doing enough. And, and, um, you know, it's possible that, uh, the sort of more staid, uh, wing of the liberals, um, will, will become dissatisfied with what they're seeing. And that, that, that I think that provides an opportunity, um, to the left, but I mean, this is just a, I'm just I mean, who knows? I mean, if 2020 taught us anything, it's the futility of, of forecasts, I think. And s-
0: same question to Beth.
2: I'm occupying different spaces online than Ken is. So um, I I think what I'm seeing is a lot of the liberals that are in these Facebook groups that um, that I'm in, they just look like they are fine with what's happening now. We've got Joe Biden in, things are good. We don't have to worry anymore. I I think a lot of them are going to be making a lot of excuses for the administration, and they're not going to hold anybody's feet to the fire because... Um, you know, they were so up in arms over Trump and everything Trump did. And Joe Biden is obviously not the same as Trump. So now they feel like, okay, you know, everything's fine. Let's just not fight anything. Let's just, you know, let him let him get going and, and do what he needs to do and, and leave him be to get things done. And he knows the way to get things done. And he's going to reach across the aisle and we're all going to be one happy united family now. And And I don't know how long it's going to take them to wake up to that. But right now, none of them want to hear anything that's negative about Joe Biden because he just hasn't been in there long enough and you need to just give him time. So um, for me, what I'm seeing is, is super disappointing because, you know, all the people that I think we're sort of sympathetic to the left's position while Trump was in, are just back and back away from it. And now we're all just Bernie bros again.
0: Yeah. You know, what's funny is like, I already see the blueprint being laid down where, you know, I could tell even if Biden is going to be there for eight years, somehow it's going to be like, well, it's only, you know, seven years and 11 months. Like, what do you want from him? Like, like I, I can just see it already, you know, being set up like the, permanent apolog- apologism. So I'm not looking forward to that, but I definitely see a lot of that happening. And I think the main thing that I've come to realize is a lot of the people who were saying all that stuff about, uh, no, we have to do this because what's going to happen is he's going to be so ready to be pushed left that we can do all this stuff once he's in. Now that he's in, and you bring up all the ways that he's not moving left, and they are just like, oh, well, who cares? You know, you kind of realize, I don't think it's even that they were mistaken or anything i think they really just didn't care they were just saying whatever they had to say to shut people up because uh no matter what you show them about anything disappointing that he's done so far everything's like well so what well so what what did you want trump and you know the truth kind of comes out
2: yeah well like he's biden said day one he will work on family reunification day one came and went day two and day three came and went. And, you know, so when people were pointing that out online, Jordan Yule was pointing that out online and and people were fighting with Jordan and and saying things like, well, you know, he addressed DACA. And, you know, DACA isn't the same as reuniting these families. And, you know, if you say day one and you don't do it on day one, you're not following anything that you said why why should we believe you that it's going to happen on day seven and, and why are you making excuses and saying well look at DACA yes the DACA thing that he did that needed to happen and yes uh stopping deportations needed to happen but reuniting families also needs to happen and, and those other two things are not the same
0: I think the real important problem here, though, to kind of play devil's advocate, be sympathetic to them, is um, they can't go to brunch now. That, I think, is a real problem. Like COVID has not been worked on effectively such that on the day of the inauguration, everybody can indoor brunch. And I think that's the real priority, that everybody wanted to go back to brunch and they can't because of COVID. Once Indoor dining is back and then everyone can go back to brunch. I think everything else is gonna fall into place too. Um, Ice reunification, DACA, Medicare for All. I think all that has to come after brunch and we'll be good. With that, um I wanna thank everybody for for being here. Let's uh pray for brunch to come back and let's get the hashtag let's get the hashtag going. Yeah, pray bring brunch. Bring, bring brunch bring brunch back and everything else will fall into place. Brunch back better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Yeah. Thanks guys for uh, joining me and let people know where they can find you in case they missed it, like Twitter accounts, websites, et cetera.
1: I write for the intercept. You can see my writing there. I'm really just on Twitter. And then if you're, uh, you know, if you're a government official or or adjacent to any of that kind of stuff, I've got my signal on my uh, Twitter as well.
2: I'm on Twitter as at Beth Borden. I have a Patreon. If people want to support our work, that's um, patreon.com slash Beth Borden. And um, I'm also on Instagram, but please do not send a direct message on Instagram. I'm on there as at B Borden.
0: Okay, no problem. Uh, thanks, guys. Everyone, uh, thanks for joining us and have a good one.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Good seeing you.